the entry point if you're going to do a Burt Lancaster is you got to first get the jaw set properly. So right. first you you got to you got to do that, you know. And you get gotta, all your teeth out. Permanent yeah. grin. And then the and then the once you got the jaw set, then the 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 real then like that's kind of like setting the table and then the first dish is his chuckle. That's how you get into it. You know, first you set the jaw and you go <laughs> You got to do that. You got to go, <laughs> and then you're in, you know, and then it's the cadence. You got to get the cadence right. You got to know when to speed up and when to slow down. That's the key. He's got a real crazy cadence, you know? Yeah. One of the most unique rhythms uh, of dialogue ever. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's all over the place, you know, but once you can get in, then you're usually good, you know? Yeah. Do you hear me, Jesus? It's got to be like that. Jesus, the job. You gotta... Do you hear me, Lord? We didn't forget your birthday. So you were just like ordering smokes at 7-Eleven in that voice? No, I was like walking around and I was just going like, <laughs> you know, I'd be like, bottle of water, bottle of water. <laughs> Diet Dr. Pepper, please. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, I have the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown him? Then crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the side. That's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. So for those who might be tuning in for the first time, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a theme for the week, and then the other two hosts have to program films in response to that theme. And this week, it was my turn to pick the theme. And uh, as often happens, I'm inspired by some things I've been reading. And I, I recently read this book about Jacob Frank, who was this charlatan of sorts, maybe, you know, a real messiah. It all depends on how you read it. He was um, someone who claimed to be the messiah for the Jews in the 1700s in Poland. And he developed his own crazy little cult where he had a multitude of women who allowed him to just suckle at their breasts all day. And it turned into this like crazy cabal of sex and partying that traveled throughout throughout Poland and a few other areas in Eastern Europe. And it got me thinking about the nature of false prophets and how well that translates to the movie screen, you know? So that was the that was the task this week. I wanted to look at false prophets and I left it pretty open-ended. You know, I, I had suggested that it didn't necessarily have to be related directly to religion, but we did end up you know, with a pair of pair of wild preachers, actually a bit more than a pair. There's a, there's a few different ways of preaching uh, in both of the films we have here today, and uh, I, I'm very pleased. I I had a lot of fun watching both films. It certainly scratched the itch and and got me thinking about false prophets in general. And you know, I think we should just jump right into it. So Marsh had the earlier of the two films, a very, very early film. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a, a little bit about that one? Well, when you laid out the topic, uh, two 
false prophets immediately popped into my head. One of them uh, was what Andy picked. And so the other one was what I picked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and to me, when thinking about, you know, the, the classic uh, false prophets or nefarious preachers in particular that I like throughout cinema, uh, you know, Mitchum in, in Night of the Hunter notwithstanding, I immediately went to Paul Robeson in Oscar Michaud's Body and Soul from 1925, in which Paul Robeson, uh, in a dual role, plays both a evil preacher and uh, an inventor who's also his brother. But we'll get to uh, all that zaniness in a second. The film was written and directed by Oscar Michaud, and uh, I gotta do, like, bio time, because he's basically the most interesting person who ever lived. Oscar Michaud was born uh, in the 1880s to former slaves in Kentucky, and they moved to uh, Illinois uh, in the early days, and, and he was raised on a farm in Illinois, and eventually uh, he made his way to the big city in Chicago and had all kinds of odd jobs in the stockyards and ultimately uh, becoming a Pullman porter, where he traveled around the country and met all kinds of people and sort of like, you know, put himself through, uh, through school, you know, in, in a sense. And... Uh, after that, he took the money he earned from being a Pullman porter uh, and became a homesteader in South Dakota, uh, which, of course, is a yeah a, a crazy thing to do uh, for a young black man in like 1900, right? And so he he becomes a homesteader, and ultimately this doesn't go great, but. Uh, because of that, he starts writing novels because he's just like alone in the <laughs> in the middle of South Dakota, and he becomes a novelist and ultimately a filmmaker. And he's considered, you know, the pioneer of African American cinema. Often going door to door to sell his books and show his films from town to town, driving around, you know, with the with the reels in his trunk. He made a, a bunch of silent films uh, only. Only uh, three of which survive to this day. Uh, and then he made uh, a bunch of sound films in the 30s and 40s as well. Body and Soul, like I said, is, yeah, just one of the, you know, few remaining silent films that he made. But uh, it is, of course, you know, being this kind of outsider cinema, right, it was, uh, you know, made for African-American audiences, obviously outside of Hollywood, on a low budget. So it has, yeah, it, it's rough around the edges. Um, and that's often been historically the line on me show. It's like, oh yeah, they're kind of disjointed. Well, he didn't have a lot of money. Um, but a lot of the more recent scholarship suggests that, you know, he knew exactly what he was doing. And we'll talk about that because... It is like, uh, you know, a lot of silent films, it's it's out there, you know, and its construction uh, is not that of your standard uh, Hollywood fare, certainly plot-wise or anything. And there are flashbacks and flashbacks and, and twists and turns and like, it is just, yeah, it's wild stuff. Uh, and it all concerns, yes, this uh, nefarious preacher who has cast his spell over uh, Tatesville, and in particular, the film focuses on Martha Jane and her daughter Isabel, uh, Martha Jane being the sort of, like, uh, 
I don't know what you want to call it, like the the number one fan of this reverend, you know, basically. (laughs) Uh, And she's a big supporter, you know, of that kind of like upright religious life. Uh, And so she's sort of blind to the uh, bad goings on around her, including uh, the relationship between the preacher and her daughter, uh, which takes some very, very nasty turns, as we learn throughout the story. Um, So anyway, yeah, it's just... uh, it's a wild ride, and, I, and I, I saw this film years ago, and it was really nice to, uh, to revisit it in a, in a wonderful restoration with a, a, a banging DJ spooky score, you know? So anyway, we'll, we'll get into it. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's Body and Soul, uh, 1925. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Um, that, that, that score is awesome. I, I was quite taken by that. I always love when there's like a contemporary score placed over silent film. We, we've talked about this a bit. But yeah, so your film, you know, the structure of it is really bizarre. It almost feels as though it's like folding in on itself at one point. But I will say, you know, the, the structure of the film you picked, Andy, definitely a little bit more traditional, much more long form as well. Um, but that's because it has a lot of its roots uh, in, in, in a source material, right? So um, why don't you talk a little bit about what, what you selected? Well, as Marsh said, yes, um, you know, he, he basically texted me and we're, we're burying the lead here in a big way. But the, the long and short of it was, are you going to pick Elmer Gantry or am I? And I, uh, this was the first film that popped into my head. And I did think, you know, well, maybe I should think about something else because maybe Elmer Gantry is the obvious choice. But, you know, sometimes the obvious choice is one of the best choices you can make. So, yes, I did uh, settle on Richard Brooks's 1960 film, Elmer Gantry. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned the source material. Um, I should provide a little bit of uh, background into that. Um, This is an adaptation of the 1926 novel of the same title, by the great Sinclair Lewis. Um, But though it is based off the novel, I should point out, I've read the novel, and really this film takes a lot of sort of liberties with that text in many ways. And in fact, the, the bulk of this two and a half hour film really is only about like a quarter or maybe even less of the actual novel itself. Um, and the character is quite different. Some of the characters are, are, are quite different. But the novel, when it came out, was very controversial. Um, and it took years for this to arrive on uh, cinema screens because there were so many people in Hollywood in, you know, God's America who did not want to touch this with a 10-foot pole, perhaps, you know, for fear of of riling the big guy. Uh, (laughs) The story, I guess I'll focus more on, like, the film, uh, the film plot than than the book plot here, but the book picks up um, later in the life of Elmer Gantry, who is a a good old boy traveling salesman. He's a sort of, you know, rambling, backslapping, loud, 
uh, handshaking, you know, every man who, who has a joke for everyone, is willing to buy around at every bar. He claims at certain points that he is on a first-name basis with people in 14 different states. He's well-known, he's well-liked, but there's something missing in his journey, in his life. And uh, in the film, this leads him to a revival tent in a small Midwestern town where he sees Sharon Falconer. Sister Sharon Falconer is going to be preaching that evening. And uh, at first, he sort of is uh, bewitched by a, a pretty woman who's a part of this group, this, this revival group, who's singing out in the streets, you know, to, to advertise the revival. And that is kind of, I think, his first motivation. He's interested in this woman. He finds her very attractive. And the film wastes no time in establishing Elmer Gantry as a bit of a skirt chaser. So this leads him into the revival tent, and perhaps because he has nothing better to do, he then sets his eyes on Sister Sharon and is now completely transfixed with her. But beyond that, I think he realizes in this revival tent that, you know, this is quite a show. And for a man like him, this could be his ticket, ticket to a more successful life, a better use of his skills. And so, you know, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it all, but he basically sort of forces his way into this group and joins as a, a featured uh, preacher as well in Sister Sharon's revival group. And the film then is a sort of uh, depiction of a a very very critical depiction of the sort of nefarious commercial aspects of evangelism, revivalism, uh, organized religion of a certain kind in America in the 20th century. Um, and there's so much that happens in this two and a half hour movie, it would sort of get us really, really lost in the sauce to try to pick all that apart in this intro. So suffice it to say that the film is basically a journey of soul-shattering proportions as both Elmer Gantry and Sister Sharon have their ups and downs, uh, both believing and at times uh, lacking belief in their ability to translate the word of God to the masses. Um, I think it's an incredible film. It is the film that won Burt Lancaster his only Academy Award. Oscar gold. Yeah, and that's, you know, for me, it's crazy. You know, we were talking even off the pod about how much I, I love Burt Lancaster, and I know you both are also big Burt Lancaster mm. guys as well, and, and I mean, in a career like his, you'd expect at least one, perhaps two more but but no, it was not to be. And in fact, he was only nominated four times for Best Actor in that long storied career of his. And I have to say, you know, as a young man, I was a, a bit of a Academy Award dork, you know, when I was like in middle school. 
And, uh, and so I used to really care about that kind of thing. And I, I will say, you know, if I'm channeling that, that young Oscar nerd, uh, this is the kind of film that is really about one very dynamic performance. And it's, it's a good film and there are other great performers and great actors in it and it's shot well. It's a very well constructed film, but this is, uh, the kind of movie that you watch and go like that guy had to have won an Academy award for this role. And yes, he certainly did. It is a virtuoso, display of that man's particular skills, talents, and cadence, as we've also pointed out. So yeah, uh, that is Elmer Gantry from 1960. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, I suppose as Greg Turkington would say, they should host uh, Oscar twice a year so people like Burt Lancaster can get their fair share, you know, get their Oscar gold that that they deserve. Um, you know, before we chew over the film's in, in like an, in finer detail, I was thinking a bit more broadly about false prophets on screen and sort of the appeal of it. And I think both of these films do uh, showcase in a great way the the appeal of of false prophets and and like nasty preachers, nefarious preachers, as it is. I think there's something really fascinating about how film, in its nature is able to showcase the contradictions of someone preaching and, you know, like what they're actually up to, of course, right? Like, I feel like whenever I'm watching evangelists, you know, going nuts, you know, waving their jackets around as we were showing with <laughs> sharing YouTube videos with each other today, you always wonder, like, what are these people like actually getting up to when, when they're not on stage? Yeah. And that's one of the exciting things about false prophets on screen, because when we do see them, you know, exploring their vices behind the scenes and then seeing them on stage and you have the rapturousness of you know someone giving a sermon which is always inherently cinematic because it's so grounded in performance and and their physicality and them there on stage getting the crowd all wrapped up you you can have like intense editing to go with it but all along with it right we have the contradictions that are showcased to us outside of that sermon that build to like create these interesting portraits and both of these films really go out of their way to do that. Um, and especially in the case with Body and Soul, when it feels like a whole chunk of the film is missing, and then we are delivered that chunk of the film <laughs> later in the film, it just makes all the sermons then retroactively really interesting when we're actually given evidence as to like what had been going on. So I do think both of these films are like exceptional examples of what's so appealing about witnessing, you know, false prophets on screen. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that that is the, the mission of both films. You know, it's, it's a question with a lot of like religious uh, films or media, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea of, of people who often present themselves as holier than thou, right? And, and the mission is often to, to show us that there's a danger in these false prophets, in, in these sort of idols that build themselves up for us and often uh, for monetary gain, you know? And I, I think both of these films are, are looking at that issue and that problem um, and maybe taking two different kinds of views of it, you know? 
body and soul. It's 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 very specific that it's sort of focused on one man yeah. and evil in one man's heart. Uh, but Elmer Gantry is is you know in spite of these characters, it's trying to look much more broadly at revivalism, evangelism mm-hmm. as a whole. Elmer Gantry is is a facsimile of a lot of different people. Sister Sharon is a facsimile of a lot of different people. And in the case of Elmer Gantry and the source material, this was built out of Sinclair Lewis's like research of going to lots of these different churches and revival shows and tents and meeting different people and then coming into this by saying, all right, like these people are, are, are shady as fuck, you know? And, and Mm -hmm. even if they aren't, are outright criminals, you know, they're frauds, they're frauds of one form or another, whether it's, it's illegal or not. That's the sort of gray zone that, that he is, is playing in. That's that, that he's sort of entering into. And I think it's important to point out, I mean, even though these films are made 30 plus years apart, like the, these topics are still like the most taboo uh, topics mm-hmm. on screen at this point in American society. I mean, they are both anti-clerical films or, or in a sense. And, and obviously, like they both had issues uh, in terms of Michaud having issues with state censorship boards and obviously adapting the, the novel to screen. Like you can't do all that stuff, right? You have to change it. You know, it's still the production code, which is a religious document, you know? Right, so like, right. uh, yeah, Absolutely. it's, it, it is, It is. you know, they're very charged films because of that. And I think, you know, we should point out the connection as well. Uh, they're both set in the 1920s. So there's, right. a, there's a very particular aspect about boozing and prohibition and the inherent hypocrisy uh, in that and in that era where people did, yes, preach, uh, you know. Teetotalism. Pro- yeah, all that while... You know, taking a nip from the bottle behind yeah, the scenes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the speakeasies and all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's laid bare in both films. Both films have speakeasies and shady bartenders, <laughs> you know, all that good stuff. And these sort of like hucksters uh, who move in and out of these like very 1920s spaces. Right. And, and on the heels of, you know, actual uh, revivalism going on in the early 20th century. But, you know, I know in the case of Michaud, this this did not earn him a lot of fans. Uh, Body and Soul was not really, re- like, received very well, uh, and particularly within the black community, because he's, of course, taking aim at the pillar of the black community. And obviously people wanted more positive representation, but uh, that's, you know, having seen the three Michaud silent films, you're not going to get that uh, in his movies. You're going to get a multi-perspective, multiple, you know, like in the, in those three Michaud films, like there's all different kinds of people. Uh, and that offend, that offend, you know, that offends people today, right? Uh, this like really raw approach because he's, he's willing to get down and dirty. I mean, uh, we can get, get out and say it. The, the preacher in this film is a rapist, you know, like that is 
Among other things. Among, yeah, among <laughs> other things, right? But that's super fucking charged. But yeah, I like too how they have in common like money being a, a very big issue. More, as you said, sort of systemic uh, in Elmer Gantry. But there's a lot of scenes where like we see Robeson just like collecting money from mm-hmm. people, bribing, shaking people down. Like it's all about that uh, in both films. Yeah, know? I mean, just the act of witnessing all of the vices that these false prophets are partaking in and then the moment you see a collection plate in their hand it just inherently makes you question the nature of a collection plate right and that's one of the reasons that both of these films were considered dangerous in their respective ways i mean it's so interesting hearing about how you know elmer gantry had such a long time um getting produced because it's funny that the film opens with this scroll of text that almost feels like an apology for the film's existence or even it 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 kind of read like a facebook post like a contemporary facebook post (laughs) about like the dangers of revivalism but the beauty beauty of the christian church you know and then like very literally of course with body and soul it was a film that was originally nine reels and was cut down to five And you can feel that absence, of course, right? I mean, there's probably so many subplots, particularly with the the identical twin brother that Paul Robeson plays that I'm sure had a much more central uh, element in the film. You know, there's all these ellipses that like kind of result in, you know, some missing data with that movie. But like, again, they both naturally then feel like dangerous objects. They're going after the commerce of the Christian church uh, in their respective arenas. Yeah, I I can't help but feel a lot of what might have been removed from body and soul had to do with the church and with the preacher Mm -hmm. inside his church in dealing with his congregation um that stuff you know when it's on screen is is really uh amazing and i think you can feel that spirit from michelle you know uh, a similar spirit to what sinclair lewis was in part trying to to question it's it's you know both both michelle and sinclair lewis in their own ways you know are are very you know, we're very progressive liberals. And I think part of their entry is is to sort of ask, like, how can these institutions be so successful? How can they exist to sort of prey upon the weakness of especially poor people, disenfranchised people, the black community, the, the working class communities who have barely two dimes to rub together and they're being asked to with whatever they have support these these people uh for for whatever you know purposes uh and and both sort of questioning the the very selfish aspect there you know how can you do this how can you essentially take advantage of these people and and merely be another person yourself and in the case of body and soul, especially a, a much worse person than probably anyone in that congregation. I feel like Elmer Gantry uh, a little bit more, you know, offers up like, well, you know, 
people believing in things, you know, isn't inherently bad, right? There are there's good things about it. Um, whereas Body and Soul feels a little harsher, uh, I think, in its kind of you know calculus in that arena. Because yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm speaking more about the the source material sure. in that case, because like in the source material, like Gantry, like is is much closer to. Uh, Reverend Jenkins in sure. Body and Soul. I mean, he has, like, gets people killed uh, for <laughs> his own gain. I mean, oh, no, yeah. he's, he is yes. more of an outright, like, psychopath than mm. the gantry we see in the film. And I think that, you know, makes sense because, again, this is a Hollywood film. Right. And you can't go that hard. Yeah, and Burt Lancaster is likable. No matter what. Yeah. And, you know, look, Bert was a, a, an atheist. I mean, like, Bert was a guy that, that you know, especially more later in his life would, I think, be much more, you know, outright with that kind of thing. But but Bert had a big hand in just about everything he did at this point in his career, the kinds of movies he would make. But, yeah, this is still a Hollywood film, and, and you can't go... Uh, you know, half as hard as Sinclair Lewis was going in the book without probably a lot of pushback, whether it be from the production code or simply from like the, the religious lobby in the country who have still a big say in the kinds of things that, that come out of, of, of Hollywood. But, but yeah, it is sort of like pulling it, pulling its punch at times. And, and I think that leads to this kind of like, spirit in the film that, that that you're getting at marsh of being like yeah i mean religious look like religion look at these people they're they're fucking con men they're flim flam artists they're 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 fraud uh you know the proprietors of fraud more than anything but as both gantry and uh lefferts the 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 you know crusading journalist will eventually like sort of agree upon well people need something to believe in people got to have some kind of uh escape from this world so so it does sort of like pull its punch right it'll get you right there and then kind of pull it back but yeah again in body and soul i just wonder like what what didn't we see because like some of it is really getting there that 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 sermon that that he starts to deliver near the end i mean like that is uh, what I wanted more of. I wanted yeah. more of that. It's amazing how the film does seem to be arguing that, you know, misplaced faith can completely destroy a community and like eat away at our souls, you know, at, at our body and souls, you know? And I think one of the things that's so rapturous and incredible about those scenes in body and soul comes from Paul Robeson's presence, which is sort of like equally volcanic as Burt Lancaster in Elmer Gantry. And it's fascinating because I think this is, this is definitely the first, but it may be one of the only silent performances from Paul Robeson. He's maybe in like two other silent films. He's like primarily of course known for his incredible voice. Um, and I still felt like in this film watching the sermon, of course I'm like familiar with Paul Robeson's voice. I still felt like I could hear him, especially with that DJ Spooky score that's placed on top of it. I mean, his 
the way he moves and when he's screaming, it, it, I felt like I could hear the intertitles coming out of his mouth. I could hear the sermon of the dry bones of the valley, you know, in Paul Robeson's voice. And I think there's a good chance that a lot of the audience would have known what he sounded like, you know, whether it was seeing him on stage or, or in another capacity, because in the silent era, obviously, like it was such a fluid situation between theater and and movies and this was his first movie and he'd really only relatively recently become an actor uh he'd been doing stage for a couple of years uh and he had then gone on to london to do emperor jones you know which he had done in new york uh right before uh, shooting body and soul so he was a relatively like new actor at at this point but yeah the fact that he was this this rising star in the black community i think is like you know on the one hand a calculated move of michelle going like oh, i gotta get this guy in in the film yeah um but you know one thing i do want to bring up that i that i read uh in my research is that uh, essentially, Body and Soul is also like responding to the plays that Robeson was in. There was a string of plays that he was in um, that were written by white playwrights about, you know, quote unquote, Negro life, right? And two of them were Eugene, <laughs> Eugene O'Neill. Um, and, and essentially, uh, Michaud in his own way is like reinterpreting these plays and writing the wrongs of like what he saw was like, wow, they're mm. written by white guys, you know? So like, ultimately, like I need to change these stories. And so what I was reading about, you know, is that he like integrates parts of these plays into body and soul. Again, this like fluid situation with theater where he's like, oh yeah, I'm just riffing on these plays. And like, everyone would know that or whatever, you know, uh, which was, and I was like, wow, I had no idea about any of this fucking shit, you know? But, you know, in particular, uh, one of the plays is about, you know, this preacher. And in the end, the preacher begs for forgiveness and, and is given it. And Michelle was like, oh, okay, no, 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 yeah, fuck that shit, you know? <laughs> and so that was like one of the main, the main motivators. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to share that with you uh, in terms of like where he was coming from in a certain sense. And that makes sense because, um, you know, considering that he was such a big star, like aside from the idea of maybe capitalizing on that, I think it's also important to, in these kinds of roles, to put someone oh, yeah. that people would inherently trust or or view as heroic or, or charismatic, charismatic, yeah, um, a good guy, you know, or or you know, a hero of some kind that you then have to really show people like, yes, it's it's always going to be that person. That's what they're going to look like. That's what a false prophet is going to to sound like. You know, they're they're going to convince you to to trust them and. And, you know, follow them anywhere and believe every single word that they say. It struck me watching uh, Elmer Gantry after Body and Soul that, uh, you know, in Gantry's like traveling salesman preaching style, he's, you know, he's very lowbrow, right? So he's like, Jesus is like a football player mm -hmm. and shit like that, right? He's always using these like sports analogies. And then I'm thinking like he's describing Paul Robeson. Like Paul Robeson was a famous college football player at Rutgers who played in the NFL before becoming a lawyer, before becoming an actor. So he was a 
famous athlete. I mean, like, and there's Bert being like, you know, God is essentially a good running back, you know? And it's like, yeah, of course, everyone in Body and Soul is like, this is our guy. This is our reverend. Like, this guy's amazing. Like, well, and that's that's part of, you know, the the at first kind of tension when his character joins this group, the revivalist group, when he sort of is like, just give me a shot, you know, put me in coach, you know, give me a chance. I'll, I'll run the ball all the way down to the end zone. You know, he's just <laughs> desperate to, to get up there uh, as a part of Sister Sharon's um, group. And Dean Jagger, who's the sort of like business manager, Bill of the group, um, who, uh, you know, he's very distrustful of Gantry. And then when he starts to see Gantry's particular style of sermonizing, he doesn't like it because he thinks it's vulgar, it's lowbrow. And even Sister Sharon says that. Any punk ball player can make a slide like that. But how many folks have got the guts to play ball on God's team? And listen to this, the captain of that team is Jesus Christ himself. So come on, everybody, man, woman, child, who will be the first to shake hands for Jesus? Come on now, everyone! Are you going to make me beg and beg when I'm offering my Jesus? Did the Savior die in vain? Did he suffer on the cross for nothing? Oh, my God, I can't stand it! Oh, my God, no, not anymore! All right, you sinner. I'll fight you every day in the week for God and twice on Sundays. But of course, with Sister Sharon, she's already falling under his his charismatic spell, you know, and perhaps there's a sexual attraction there because he's a very sexual creature. I mean, Burt Lancaster's one of the most sexual creatures yeah. that's ever walked the earth. <laughs> yeah, it's undeniable. I keep thinking about something you just said beforehand about, you know, like you kind of inherently trust both of these figures immediately when they appear on screen. Part of that just being because they, you know, they feel like movie stars. They are attractive. They are immediately charismatic and appealing. I was thinking about one of the great false prophets on screen, of course, Brad Dorif in, in Wise Blood. That's not a guy that, that you no. inherently trust from the moment he appears on screen. And of course, as with the source material there in the film, uh, neither does the town, right? You know, <laughs> people don't buy into Brad Dorif's, you know, his sermonizing initially either. But yeah, I mean... There is that element, too, of just the sexualized preacher being something that's inherent with the false prophet. What is like the ultimate sin? You know, of course, they have their vices. They're drinking. Maybe they gamble and they get up to stuff. But it's the sexual nature that feels like the ultimate sin of a preacher. It is like so contradictory to like what they're supposedly standing for and the virtues that they're extolling. And of course, both films flirt with with that extensively. <laughs> Not even flirt with it. Both films <laughs> yeah. deal with that I extensively. Mm -hmm. Of course, in one case, one being like, criminal and horrifying. And then instead, it's something that's more human with... Elmer Gantry, but it's used against him just because of his status as someone who is supposed to be the voice of God, you know? Yeah. Yeah. With Gantry, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's just a part of his character. It's, it's his, it's his flaw. I mean, he has many vices. I mean, he can't yeah. say no to a good time and that's established immediately in the film. I mean, it opens in a bar. In fact, they, they, they show the, in a very classic Hollywood way as they begin their adaptation, the, the first page of the novel itself. And the very first line of the book is Elmer Gantry was drunk. 
Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, like, that's it. He's drunk on everything. He, he consumes everything around him to its, to its fullest. And, 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 you know, Gantry, it's interesting in a way. I mean, it's like he kind of sleeps his way to the top throughout the film. He's constantly sort of bouncing from one woman to another, from one bed to another as a way of sort of, you know, emotionally uh, manipulating uh, as well. Mm-hmm. There's an, an interesting, like, background story in, in Elmer Gantry that's never fleshed out. Uh, with Sister Rachel, the the woman that he first seduces to get into, uh, you know, the circle, essentially. Uh, and then for the next, like, two hours and 15 minutes, she's, <laughs> like, acting this whole movie out in the background <laughs> of the movie where she's, like, so desperately in love with Elmer and getting, like, shut down and, and shuttled aside, like, uh, as, you know, Lancaster's tearing through all these spaces, yeah. you know? Yeah, like, he's ghosting her big time, Oh, dude. yeah, just constantly throughout the movie. And it's, like, it is this, like, very subtle, devastating thing. Maybe even not subtle, but, like, uh, it's just really not, like, elaborated on. And I'm just, like, looking at her this whole movie. You know, I've seen it before, so I'm just looking at the background now. I'm just going, like, what's yeah. going on with all these people? Yeah, I mean, this time around, again, like, rewatching it and, and much more active viewing, like, she's a much more tragic character than... I mean, I remembered that part, you know, that's like, well, first, yeah, he, he kind of gets this woman, but this time around, like you said, like you really do notice that, that, that it goes on the entire film. She's still there and she's still like pining, you know, silently for him and after him, but, but also realizes that ship has sailed, you know? I mean, same thing with Bill Morgan, the Dean Jagger character. He's so hopelessly in love with Sharon in the most, like, quiet, desperate way, and everyone is just fucking trampled by Gantry because he's, like, you know, a thousand times as charismatic as any of them. He's like a fucking tornado. I love when Bert does his little jump when you, like, see him doing his first sermon. Oh, the baseball slide. (laughs) Yeah, he does the the baseball slide (laughs) onto the stage in really his only moment of acrobatics, you know. You always hope or or wonder, like, what's he going to jump onto or off of this time? But uh, this is Elmer Gantry. This is a prestigious literary adaptation. So he only gets (laughs) the baseball slide, you know. Nick Nick Cravat isn't lurking anywhere in that, you know, audience ready to, to point him out a, a conveniently placed trapeze. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I was like waiting for it. I was like, when are we going to see some like physical prowess with Bert? You know, we got the teeth. We all have like all 400 of Bert's teeth, you know, in the center of this like beautiful, colorful frame. But I'm like, when are we going to see that guy move around? So I was glad that we, you know, that, that was delivered. I, and thinking about his teeth, I love all of the like body jokes that he tells, just like big mouth wide open that like it's a great introduction that opening christmas scene at the bar where he tells that joke we'll use the audio clip anyway this guy comes home you see and he finds his wife with his best friend yeah and the husband says harry how could you do this and the wife she says why should you complain harry didn't do it to you (laughs) but boy why did i tell you if you can't already (laughs) 
real class. Oh, with his gift of gab, he could really go places with our outfit. Hey, pal, you ought to quit that punk job of yours. Yeah, why don't you come with a live wire sales outfit like ours? Oh, it's no use, boys. Every time I'm in town, I ask you to go on the road for our company, right, pal? Sure, Ed, sure. <laughs> listen, fellas, listen. Yeah. Two dames at a bar, Yeah. And one dame says to another, if I don't get to bed pretty soon, I'm going home and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and just hearing that come out of Bert is just it's so funny and it like perfectly sets the stage for this like vulgar, you know, this vulgar preacher. Well, it's a, it's an important part of his character because I think again in in trying to define like Gantry's particular kind of um you know, I guess you could say skill set or something. I mean, he is a, an incredible communicator. He's a chameleon, and and he always shifts his uh, interactions depending on who he is. I mean, that man, as we will see as the film develops, like that guy understands how to read a room, and he's able to basically download, you know, whoever he's with, and then you know, throw things at them that he knows they're going to get a kick out of. So yes, with the, the other salesmen, the, the business guys, yeah, it's, it's dirty jokes. And then suddenly when he's, he's, you know, in the room with a religious figure, he's able to, to quote Bible scripture with the best of them. I mean, he's always ready to go and to provide whoever he's dealing with this kind of like disarmament right off the bat of language. And, and, you know, it's like, I was trying to think, is he a psychopath in the book? He is like a fucking psychopath here. I don't think he is a psychopath or a sociopath. I no. think it's much more like this kind of narcissistic, uh, desire, this need within him to be, the center of attention to be well liked to be to be seen as the the cool guy at any given moment there's so much sadness in lancaster's performance that gives it like so much humanity like you know his soulful puppy dog eyes like you just can't resist it and there are those moments where he you know he has his own reckonings and and you can see it in his face like he knows. He's he's, he's an know. incredibly like lonely dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's what the film does a really good job of of establishing. And again, it's very different from the book, but but in in the film, Gantry is just a very like sad, lonely guy. And and that's the thing. I think my read on it isn't that when he walks into that revival tent, uh, it's like I think the 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 simple read is that he smells a buck. But I think, again, watching it this time for me, I realized, like, he is not in this at all for the money. You know, unlike in Body and Soul, where there is so much emphasis on that preacher getting his hands on some cash. I mean, there's, like, mm -hmm. close-up, these great close-ups even of, like, his hands, like, rubbing money. Yeah. Uh, you never really see that. For Gantry, I mean, this guy, as soon as he's got money, he's spending it on everybody in the room. He's, he's, you know, buying drinks for everyone. He's buying dinner. He's buying flowers. He is lavishing gifts on other people. He doesn't live this very, you know, sort of um, material existence. He just wants to be there. He wants to be popular. He wants to be liked by people. And so for me, when he's in that revival tent, he sort of looks around 
and he sees Sister Sharon and he sees this whole thing. He's kind of like, I just want to be on that stage. I want everybody to be clapping for me, to be applauding me. Like his desire isn't to to sort of like raid the 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 tithe, you know, bucket or whatever. It's it's he wants to raid uh love. Yeah, I buy that. I mean, when we first see Sister Sharon Falconer, you know, and he's watching that sermon, he is entranced by the love and affection that she's receiving from her audience. You know, like at first glance, it seems like he's falling just in love with her, you know, that he's like, he's pursuing her because he thinks she's beautiful, but he can also feel something like her aura that she has over her audience. And I think that, yeah, the, the real read there is that he's he's feeling that desire to have like that surround him in a crowd because, you know, it's got there's that great early moment of characterization when he's talking to his mother on the phone. And he's like, oh, mom, I got like, I got a train to catch, you know, I got to go. And then we smash cut and he's just riding the rails, cradling his shoes so that if anyone tries to take the shoes out of his hands, he's going to have to wake up and defend himself. You know, he is a lonely guy. That's like the ultimate lonely thing is trying to protect your shoes while you're riding the rails, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And really, Never thought of it that way. That's amazing. Yeah. And really, he just goes from one transient lifestyle to another right he goes from being a traveling salesman to a traveling preacher and he's basically yeah living this the same life although of course his uh desire for sharon leads him to you know drink less i think at a certain point in in the film right he sort of like chills out a little bit you know before it all comes tumbling down i mean there's a negative aspect to it right because he knows how to play people but you know he is someone that really does thrive on these relationships and connections. And I think that's, that's it, you know, that, that on a certain level, this does also bring out like the best in him at times, you know? And I think he realizes that he's like the life that I was living as the traveling salesman seeking the same thing, seeking, seeking validation, seeking, camaraderie seeking all this stuff like to play their game i mean he even bluntly says it like i had to drink you gotta be in these bars you gotta be smoking and like i i go to bed alone or i wake up next to some stranger and that's no life to live so i think that he does like let go of some of that stuff you know once he's in this and he, he kind of like starts to to believe in it. He actually does kind of convert a little bit, oh, I yeah. think. I mean, I think maybe he's not a, even a little bit. No, know? I mean, I think he's he's an actually religious person too. I mean, I think that's sort of made clear in his interaction, you know, with uh, Lefferts, the Arthur Kennedy four-time gauntlet returning champion. <laughs> uh, you know, they have that interaction where he's like, "You really do believe?" And he's like, "Yeah, of course I do." You know, and he's not being cynical for how cynical he is he's in that moment he's he's dead serious you know so uh there's something to that again like returning to body and soul it's a much more uh black and white silent era melodrama kind of kind of look uh at these things right because reverend jenkins uh is is not redeemable you know uh and and we learn of course like you know we've we've mentioned the flashbacks and i think we should try and like flesh it out a little bit because it like 
it's yeah, it's when you first watch it. I mean, you really do have this moment of being like, "What just happened in that cut? Like, there is something yeah. missing there." It it's like destabilizing. I was I was just like totally disarmed throughout the film, trying to figure out what was going on all the time. I was, you know, I had the benefit, of course, of being able to rewind. <laughs> you know, I wasn't an audience in, in 1925 witnessing this thing and just being exposed to it. But I mean, it took me well over 90 minutes to watch Body and Soul. I was constantly referring back, trying to figure out like what exactly I was missing with some of these edits. But then because of that, I felt like so many of the cuts felt so new in a weird way. And I don't know if it was like accidental because of the way that the film ended up being condensed from nine reels to five, but it's something that is so unadorned and simple at times. And yet some of the cuts do feel radical because of the resulting film that we have, you know? And I think like that speaks to the way that while his motives are a bit more clear, right? Like he just wants money. That's what the preacher is going after, like sex and money, right? But it is, it's really money. And we see the way he strokes it and massages it in his hands. But I think what's more complex about the film then is what is the the ultimate crime beyond just like stealing the money? Like what is at the heart of all of this? You know, because I keep thinking about how you characterize the mother as the reverend's number one fan, thinking about the really sparse set design, but the way her home is designed. We spend so much time oh, yeah. in her home. I mean, the poster. The posters on the wall, this like beautiful, bright white angel with these two little like black children, like reaching out to them, right? Like it's almost like this pop religious art that scatters her wall. You have like Abe Lincoln, you have like all these other figures. And it's like, that's the woman that this guy is going after because he knows it's so easy to prey upon that misplaced faith. And that's like an extremely provocative thing for 1925. I can understand why, you know, Michaud maybe not, might not have been the most popular people with the censors <laughs> with this film. But yeah, maybe I'm still speaking too broadly. Maybe no, we should like I mean, sort of detail these like the flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, Mar you know, Martha Jane is is the dreamer. You know, she's this idealist who sees the church as her salvation, and she is a striver, right? You know, she she makes her money. Uh, washing clothes and picking cotton which we get in like this crazy iris like oh cross cut out of nowhere uh to never be returned again but uh, a useful bit of information and she is saving up a bunch of money she keeps it in the bible you know she's very much this stereotypical like church going woman right and so it's all about like her dream being fucking shattered uh, by what happens to her daughter, right? And and she's trying to like at a certain point uh, set her uh, her daughter up with the reverend, even though her daughter is in love with his brother Sylvester, the inventor, also played by Paul Robeson. Um, and you know the mother leaves them alone together, and then Michaud elides what actually happens, right? So that's the first thing where you're like, what? What's okay? There's a yeah. huge jump. Yeah. We have this moment where she she leaves her daughter in the room with Reverend Jenkins. And then we simply like cut back later and her daughter is like collapsing on the floor. And she's sort of like, uh, are you sick? 
you must be hungry. I think that's, that's the conclusion she comes to. Oh, my daughter, my poor daughter, she's hungry. Uh, and we don't get any information in that, that cut, that crazy cut there. And of course it's like the only thing banging around in her head. And I, I think from the show, it, it shows a really like some like narrative ingenuity for this time period to sort of like to, to dangle that in front of the audience as a means of like keeping them invested and involved because we've got to know what the hell happened. Like we all can see something isn't right. Even if she's choosing to ignore it or to, I guess, even in her own naive way, just not even suspect that there could have been anything wrong there that it had anything to do with, with the Reverend Jenkins. But I do want to also point out that I think it's even, like with her character, it's th- there's even like a little bit more going on in the sense that that this whole setup with, um, you know, the the two would be suitors, like her motivation, her toil, and everything is about like setting up her daughter's life mm-hmm. and and sort of guiding her daughter in her view to like uh, the the best possible life a better life than 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 she has and you know when her daughter when isabel like makes the pitch about like well sylvester's a great guy i'm in love with her too like that's martha's like moment of of kind of being like but that's not the life that i envisioned for you in my mind my fantasy you're with reverend jenkins and 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 she like manipulates that moment, you know, she creates that moment. She forces them together. But really like the movie where I feel like we're, we're mostly with Martha, you know, we, we are mostly yes. with then her having to grapple with and understand, you know, what went wrong, what's wrong with her daughter. I've done everything right. I've, I've made good choices to push her down a certain path. And I cannot understand why she suddenly leaves, dips town after this moment. That was the thing I was so struck by because I hadn't seen this film before. The only Michaud I've seen is Within Our Gates. And I sort of had an idea of what Body and Soul was about, mainly just because of the presence of Paul Robeson and, you know, just like seeing clips from this film before and having an idea of the synopsis of it. You know, oh, it's a false prophet. The Paul Robeson's like a nefarious preacher. But I had no clue that this film really is primarily a story about a mother and a daughter. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely the majority of the screen time. I, I think I didn't obviously didn't total it up, but I, you know, I, I poured over the film again. It's, I told you it took me a while to watch it. I kept going back and forth with scenes. And I feel like they collectively, the two of them have more screen time than the preacher mm-hmm. you know, throughout the entire film. And I'm like, I can't think of another silent film that is so sensitive and detailed of a mother-daughter relationship like this and giving it that much screen time and importance. I was so taken by that element of it. And that's why I feel like a lot of what has to have been cut out is right. Paul Robeson as this bad boy preacher doing all kinds of other things because we get this whole subplot also introduced with Yellow Curly, I yeah. think is his name, who, I, if I'm reading it correctly, I think is like a pimp. 
that has rolled into <laughs> yeah. town and is it's like his his old cellmate. Okay, because yeah. it's also established through this like very imaginative newspaper clipping that Reverend Jenkins is an escaped convict known uh, with many aliases, and he's not even Reverend Jenkins. That's he's just like yes, you know this this yeah this guy you know yeah. And so we get that like subplot that's introduced about him kind of being like. Okay, yellow curly's in town. Now we're really gonna take Tatesville together and and kind of have this like criminal empire where they're gonna use his stature as, you know, the right Reverend Isaiah T. Jenkins uh to to take advantage of everybody and also to find girls. That's something that is explicitly said that, you know, Yellow Curly is looking for girls and and I I can, you know you know, go through the flock, I guess, and find a few sheep for you. But, but a lot of that stuff from its introduction into the plot kind of then disappears. Yeah. I think a lot of the gambling and drinking was uh, cut from the censors from what I read, like mm-hmm. a lot of that subplot, you know, cause it is like, yeah, the, the gangster pimp, uh, you know, subplot. Yeah. And I mean, for 1925, the idea of a shot, simply a shot of a man in, you know, religious garb in the collar, the white collar and the black coat, like sitting in, what was the name of the club? Oh, I wrote it down. The, I the, loved it. The Autumn Leaf Social Club. Yeah. The Autumn yeah. Leaf Social Club <laughs> with this like, you know, card shark bartender uh, getting absolutely, I mean, fucking hammered, shit-faced. Like, yeah. not just, like, sipping on a cocktail, but, like, just downing a bottle of booze. Uh, like, for the censors, just that image alone is enough for them to be like, look, this is too much. This is way too much to, to show this kind of thing. We can't have this guy doing all these things in religious clothing. You just can't show that. Yeah. And that's why it's such like a radical gesture in that very first sermon, which has one of my favorite inner titles ever, just because of its simplicity, when Robeson is giving his sermon in front of everybody and he kind of freezes up for a moment. And then the inner title just says, Memories. And we like dissolve back to these images of him in prison and behind bars. Um, and just the way that it's like memory is interrupting this sermon. He's not able to immediately like hold on to his charismatic persona. He can't quite be the false prophet, you know, like there's like this moment where there's a crack in it. And then like that memory of jail seeps in. That's like that great silent film shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, he's like falling down drunk in that scene. It's like watching him stumble up those stairs. (laughs) I was thinking of the great Chaplin short, 1AM. I don't know if you have ever seen 1AM, but that's the one where he's just the drunk guy coming home from a night out on town and like just simply trying to like get in bed and how difficult it is and like... Props to Robeson for for that prolonged sequence of watching him just simply try to get home uh, drunk as a skunk, dude. I mean, like the struggling with the door where he's like kind of falling backwards. You're like, oh, oh, oh is he going to make it? You know, yeah. like, 
it's really great physicality on yeah. his part. I mean, like Lancaster, he's uh, yeah, a physical uh, you specimen. Know, yeah, just like an athlete, you know. And watching him uh, bounce around this movie is uh, is an absolute joy. Yeah, and again, just the prohibition element, like that, is just like another piece of this, you know, of why it was so provocative. Like it was such a fascinating double feature because of that, having like one film obviously shot. <laughs> in the mid-1920s, another one set during the mid-1920s and having Prohibition so much at the heart of their portrayals of the false prophets. Booze put a bullet through Lincoln and McKinley. Booze is the way white slavers rob the virtue of 60,000 American girls every year. The white slavers. And that newspaper are trying to scare me and sister out of town. But as long as I got a foot, I'll kick booze. As long as I got a fist, I'll punch it. And as long as I've got a tooth, I'll bite it. And when I'm old and gray and toothless and bootless, I'll gum it till I go to heaven and booze goes to hell. Just the amount of like drinking and bottles that are like hidden in different chests. I mean, I particularly loved the fake set of books that are in Elmer Gantry that like you review, open up the spines and reveal that it's just like a giant wooden chest and not like a collection of encyclopedias, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, uh, again, I think when you're dealing with false prophets, the, the, the central question is always uh, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Um, and... And that is like uh, what makes Gantry particularly so successful, especially when he becomes this crusading force within this uh, religious group, this revival group that he's a part of, because he knows all those hiding spots. He knows all the tricks. He's not naive. He's been in all those speakeasies. So when he rolls into a town and he can say, I know that there's a den of sin over there, it's because he's been there, you know? Like, it's it's his experience. And I guess both of these characters kind of draw upon their other lives, their, their, their memories, if you will, to help them like prey upon people that much more. I guess prey upon in the case of body and soul, in the case of Elmer Gantry, like make him kind of just simply an expert in sin and facing it and finding it and rooting it out. Well, it's interesting too, thinking about the different types of traditional sin that are dealt with in both of these films that like would be the things that you, you know, you wouldn't want preachers to partake in as, as Andy, you had mentioned with Curly and, and his ladies, which uh, I had written down that I'd forgotten that the name of his ladies were the Cotton Blossoms Shoulder Shakers. Oh, yeah. But there are also sex workers then in, in Elmer Gantry, which, you know, was very taboo in its portrayal, I'm sure, in 1960. The way we're introduced to them is they're sitting around reading the newspaper and one of them's handed a cigarette, right? The provocative image of a woman scantily clad smoking on a cigarette. But that's something that I think is really interesting for a film from 1960. And perhaps much of this maybe comes from the source material, though, as the way you've characterized Elmer in the text is is more of a psychopath. I was surprised to see a film from 1960 where this man who was the false prophet, albeit still like a preacher and supposed somewhat man of God, does have like 
affection for women who work as sex workers and he isn't like completely dismissive of them because that moment when he is reunited with them is a moment of tenderness and it's not one of like mocking of like this woman's station in life. What was, it was her name? Lulu, I think. Lula Baines. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But she has a very specific connection to him as well. Yes. Yes. And that goes back to his days when he was actually in the seminary, when he was, mm-hmm. because that's one of the things that, that everyone says to him, the, the way he quotes Bible scripture and, and, and the way, you know, his, his familiarity with, with religion and religious services and preaching, everyone says, you, you you've got to be a preacher, right? You must have been a preacher. And he's always kind of dodging that question, avoiding it. He eventually says, oh, well, you know, I was, and I was supposed to be married. And and on the right. day before, you know, I, I walked in and saw my betrothed Lula Baines with another man. When in reality, it was... You know, yeah, he took her at the altar and left town. Yeah, he seduced the preacher's <laughs> daughter, and that's yeah. why he got he got run out of the seminary. Uh, so, so when his eyes meet with her, yes, there is also that deep personal connection. But to your to your p- bigger point about the depiction of the sex workers in this film, I think it's very progressive for a film from 1960 because they aren't you know, shown as these just sort of like fallen women and bad influences and bad figures. You know, this film treats vice and quote sin in a very like matter of fact, practical way of sort of even comic way. They're all very funny. All the women like bickering and bantering and smoking and reading the paper, you know? Yeah. and, And I think that part of it is that, you know, these women of all women understand hypocrisy, understand, you know, upstanding men who perhaps uh, lead a, a double life, if you will, that they really know, you know, what's what's going on behind closed doors, in other words. I love when Lulu is recounting to her girls her experience with Gantry, and she says that he rammed the fear of God in me so fast. <laughs> Yes, Dude, there there are some there are some very seedy like double yeah, entendres yeah. that get thrown around in this film. Like later, at a certain point, when when Gantry is really putting the full court press on Sister Sharon Falconer, he says to her, "I'd like to tear those holy wings off you, make a real woman out of you. I'd show you what heaven's like. No golden stairways or harp music or silvery clouds, just ecstasy coming and going." And the way he says it. You know, I mean, it is it is incredibly sexually charged. But yeah, I mean, again, like we've said, I think that there are reasons why even in 1960, this film was was being even like sort of promoted and marketed as a very adult film. I don't know if you read this, but this was one of the first films in this sort of waning era of the the production code that actually uh, basically had a, a rating uh like a rating system applied to it where, you know, they were told at movie theaters, like no one under 16 was allowed to enter this film because mm. I mean, even in like the promotional material, they were like Burt Lancaster, I think did like a trailer where he was like, this is not a film for kids folks, you know, uh, please don't bring your children to see this because it's dealing with very adult themes and ideas. And, and I think it's a film that is meant to speak to, 
American adults at that time and, and, and saying, let's all have a, a frank talk about casting aspersions on one another, on, 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 you know, picking out the sin in someone else's life and ignoring that in your own. I think there's the, the Bible. I'm not a very religious guy, but I know that there's the, the Bible idea about the, the thorn in someone else's eye when you're ignoring the log in your own. And I think that it's, it's approaching so many of these subjects in a way that is for 1960 for whatever that's worth very very progressive yeah and i mean i was even surprised too that there were so many moments i think it was at least two maybe three of um you know cuss words that you wouldn't expect from a 1960s movie about to slide in but they get interrupted very comically by like maybe loud horns or some other sound effect mm-hmm. but people are about we're dropping some naughty language so it, it definitely seems like something that yeah it was a little more catered for the adults of the time yeah, and, and along with the runtime. I mean, you know, yeah. this film, you know, for better or worse, is such a product of late classic Hollywood. I mean, mm-hmm. it, like, you know, another film we watched of this era, some came running, is, yeah, a two-and-a-half-hour uh, colorful epic, you know, and it, it certainly spares no expense. Uh, and I know it was like a, a United Artists production, but this is a, a big-budget movie, and there are a lot of sets and a lot of extras and a lot of locations, uh, and it's just a lot. I mean, it's a it's a big... Hollywood movie, um, which is interesting because obviously on the flip side, Body and Soul is, is you know, the opposite of that, an outsider uh, Hollywood movie, you know, an outside of Hollywood movie, uh, yet they do have in common uh, these faces and the multitude of faces, you know, and I think that's the pleasure in both of these films are like the congregations, you know, and that's, uh, you know, a part of the, these kinds of films, right. You know, especially the people that you are feeling bad for, for being duped or, or whatever. And I think, uh, in, you know, it's crazy to think of like a big budget Hollywood movie like this has so many weird looking people in it, you know, because oh, all yeah. all the people Brooks got to play the yokels, you know, these people who are fucking afflicted, you know, being like, cure me, Sharon Falconer, I'm blind or whatever. Like <laughs> these people look crazy and like in a good way, they look like normal people, like fuck fucked up people that lived through the first half of the 20th century like they looked like people who survived wars you know absolutely and you know what i think leaning very heavily on the midwestern roots at, at the at the heart of both of these you know stories and 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 you know productions and people that were involved i mean sinclair lewis like michelle big Midwestern guy. And, and I think that they're both interested in that, in the heartland of America to explore the, the heartland of America and those kinds of people that you're talking about, not just glamorous, beautiful people, but, but the common folk. And, and so, yeah, I think that there's a great sort of, um, uh, visual quality there to depicting what those, common people exactly looked like yeah my favorite one was so there was this dude who like in the middle of a sermon gets up and starts like howling like a wolf and he starts like straddling a pole and he's howling but what i was so attracted to was this other man who was sitting like to to his right and it was this dude holding 
two canes <laughs> that he kept like moving up and down and like jamming on the ground as if he was like you know pounding for like a, a meal or something in a prison hall um but that was like my favorite guy you know in this multitude multitude of faces yeah big fan of the the ladies in body and soul that are like friends with martha jane oh, the old biddies oh, yeah, yeah the old the old birds you know <laughs> who are just like coming around and like trying to cook and gossip and just like yeah they like with their very like you know middle class sort of like fancy outfits you know their hats yeah and and again i think you know michaud shows like a tapestry of of class in the film right you see a lot of different people and we even get you know talk about production values uh we get a whole sequence in atlanta oh yeah uh, as well outside of our main uh main story because of course after the you know incident uh with the preacher that we're kind of unclear of what happened uh isabella turns out flees to atlanta where uh she uh well basically starves to death well she you know from my <laughs> understanding she ate some bad chicken is what well happened. yeah and that she is ate some like, pretty gnarly chicken <laughs> that is an, an amazing scene oh my god where yes. she, oh god i don't even know where to begin but yeah like Martha Jane goes down to Atlanta to to find Isabel because she thinks that Isabel stole all her money out of the Bible, which we'll learn, of course, is untrue. Uh, But she spots her as she's, like, buying, like, fucking rotten chicken from some white guy uh, on the street or whatever. I I was obsessed with that man. I I just, like, kept referring to him as the meatball man because he had (laughs) this table that looked like it was just in an alley, and he had some dirty, like, cloth that he had folded over it. No sign, like, nothing about the menu. Just a few what seemed like paper plates of just, like, different bits of meat and then, like, some bread scattered. And she comes up and he says, like, oh, that'll be, you know, three cents for some meatballs. And, like, that's what she starts eating. He hands her bread and what could presumably be called a meatball. It did just sort of look like a big mash of chicken, you know. She's nibbling on it. And then another man comes up. He's also pitched the meatballs. He gives it a whiff. He can tell that it is just rotten and foul. Instead, he decides to then buy her. He decide, This man who walks up and sees that it's rotten decides to buy Isabel, seeing her struggle with this <laughs> foul meatball. Buys her a whole half a chicken for, for 50 cents. But I was like, what is the deal with this fucking guy? Like, this dude that's just, like, out on the streets of Atlanta, has, like, no advertising materials at all for his little food truck, and he just has, like, shitty little meatballs on a plate for three cents that you could, like, come and get from him. Well, what a life. No source of just, like, keeping it warm, of course. Like, the shit's just all just sitting on the table. I do want to sort of point out as well, though, in the uh, intertitles, I think the implication there for this man as well is that he's also an immigrant, that he is a a poor, disenfranchised uh, member of the the white race because uh, he offers cheekin, spelled C-H-E-E-K-I-N, for (laughs) 50 cents, F-E-E-F-T-Y. So, again, Michaud, like, you know, also interested in, in depicting, you know, the poor folk of of not just the black race, but also the white race, and the fact that America is a very harsh place for lots of people. Especially yep. in the big city. 
Yeah, and so Martha Jane, of course, confronts Isabel, and there we get a cascading series of flashbacks that reveal uh, the rape of Isabel by Reverend Jenkins on a stormy night in a particularly kind of like horror-like sequence as they're driving around in the rain and they, you know, take refuge in this abandoned shack and then, uh, in, you know, being of the, the censorship era, uh, this, you know, shot in like close up of his shoes, basically, that like comprise this uh, rape scene. Yeah, it's, it's very like, expressionistic. Yeah. How he sort of works around that. Yeah, because obviously nothing is directly shown, but very, very, very heavily implied uh, in this like gothic manner. Like, and yeah. the way the screen is masked. Too is that lighting or was it like iris? Yeah, um, it seemed like an iris because it was yeah. yeah, it was really narrowing the image. And I guess you know you could read it's that like as ultra letterboxing, yeah, super wide screen. But like <laughs> you could read that as you know looking under the crack in the door too, right? Like her fear of those footsteps approaching her bedroom door, you know. And I was so struck how it leads into that moment because after the meatball man scene and we're in Isabel's, you know, ramshackle apartment in Atlanta, she's, she's so sickly and she's so thin. She like, looks like she's just like skin and bones and she's being cradled by her mother. Who's like a bigger woman, especially in comparison to her like sickly daughter, you know, and just that image of like the mother cradling a grown woman as she's like recounting her horrors of why she fled to the big city. I mean, it was incredibly moving. You know, it's interesting, too, because Gantry kind of does a similar thing with a moment of uh sexual intercourse as well when Elmer Gantry finally sort of uh, is able to to fully seduce Sharon into giving up her virginity to him uh it's in this moment where where Gantry is just sort of like cooing to her as she's talking about this tabernacle she's building and and she's taking him there to to show her, uh, him this temple on the shore and there's kind of like a boardwalk and he's underneath the boardwalk and, and he's slowly like backing into the pitch black darkness of the boardwalk saying, of course, of course, cooing to her as she's sort of talking about her big dreams and plans and then revealing that in her kind of sort of stumbling and mumbling that she's never had sex before and it's her first time. And he just slowly pulls her into that, that void with him, uh, which is a very, again, like... Probably, again, another way of working through the production code, which yeah. specifically had an issue with uh, first night scenes, as they were referred to. And that's a real John Alton moment. You know, we should mention the legendary cinematographer uh, who shot Elmer Gantry, of course, not known for his color photography, known for his stark expressionist black and white cinematography, you know, especially in the noir era with Anthony Mann. Uh, but here we get, yeah, those that moment in yeah. color. I mean, that's know? a dude who knows how to use shadows. Oh, God. I mean, he's the king of shadows. So, yeah, there's... Uh, 
and and there's even a cutaway to the beach as well this like empty void you know again um sort of implying a lot while uh, avoiding the the subject at hand you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know there's a character that i do want to ask you both about um that is probably next to gantry my favorite character in the whole movie and he's a very interesting and important character for sinclair lewis as well uh and that is basically gantry's main ally in the town of zenith this big midwestern city that was but zenith was a fictional midwestern city that was basically like part of the sinclair extended universe so lots of his work would take place there and you know as gantry sort of like we need to start moving to the big time we've got to get out of these small towns and get to a a bigger city they go to zenith and they have to sort of struggle with this like church committee of all these various pastors and preachers who who have space already in this town and they've got to kind of get their permission to go in and part of their entry into that is this local businessman George Babbitt George Babbitt who had his own Sinclair Lewis novel Babbitt about about him as well and um. I fucking love this guy now again in the book he is only like tangentially a part of the story. He is not the presence that he is in this film. And he's a big presence in this book. So it's almost like Richard Brooks is kind of trying to get like two great Sinclair two for one Lewis. deal. Yeah, and really expanding upon him. And I just absolutely love him because for those who aren't familiar, Babbitt is a, a kind of like similar journey that Sinclair Lewis makes, but with a different sort of subject matter where he's sort of looking at, uh, you know, business people. Because he's like a real estate guy, mostly. Yes. Uh, And in the book Babbitt, it's really kind of a few days in Babbitt's life and his family and just being this 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 avowed conformist, this guy who just loves America and capitalism and all the things about it that that you know make it this beautiful, wonderful land of opportunity, of course, for certain people and some people. It's a great satirical novel. But here he is depicted as just this obnoxious, goofy fucking uh uh just yes, like the the, the caricature of a businessman a capitalist i fucking love that guy edward andrews in full bozo mode christianity is a going concern a successful international enterprise now if you boys don't get the young people back into church if you don't keep the train on the tracks (laughs) your church boards are going to find somebody else who will isn't that clear reverend garrison speaking for myself not my congregation or its church board religion is not a business and revivalism is not religion. And my vote is no. Good night, gentlemen. Phil. Harvard. <laughs> well, look around you, boys. Young folks crying out there, the lost generation. Godless anarchists on every street corner, and he walks out on a crisis. Do you realize that practically every president of the United States was a Mason and a Protestant? Dude, Dude totally. every everything he says 
is the most like hollow, vacuous thing delivered with so much panache. Like uh, everything he says is this kind of like meant to be a kind of like philosophical statement, but they're they're totally like garbage and and hollow. Like what is one of the things he says? He says, well, you know what I always say? Business is business. You know, things like that. I wrote down like so many of his his lines. They're incredible. Uh, he that actor kind of looks like he could be related to Jim Belushi uh, or Belushi, excuse me. <laughs> but he right. does like he has like that kind of like a puffy face, you know. And so like his buffoonery did, I think, befit the supposed Midwestern setting. I know I, I, I think that I don't know if that actor is like from the Midwest, but he's got like that vibe for sure in terms of like a Midwestern business charlatan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's even, you know, like he is a, he's just such a, like a. Uh, uh, an invasive presence in this. And I think that's really where the, the film starts to really kind of narrow its focus in on this, this criticism of, you know, the, the relationship between capital and the, mm-hmm. the contemporary church and the, the way that guys like him as business people will use their, their networking in these kinds of religious circles to prey upon parishioners, prey upon congregations, basically, you know, build business empires for themselves out of their, their, their ties to religious figures, to preachers, to pastors. And, and the people's sort of money. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, just like setting up a call center so you can have like psalms assigned to your problems. You yeah. know, give a call, let them know your troubles, and they'll like they're like, okay, you should check out this passage. I think this will like see you through the day. And ultimately, too, I think that's what makes uh, you know, Gantry such a nineteen like sixty film, like all the stuff not just with business, but like the media and celebrity, um, you know, there's echoes of that, right? You know, like thinking of like, this is the age of, you know, like a face in the crowd, like there's Sweet smell of success. Yeah. There's all these sort of like, you know, demagogues and, 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 you know, played by Burt Lancaster or whatever, but like, you know, all these charlatans. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, 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 the church committee says it, you know, when they're really kind of struggling with the idea of bringing in this, this, revival uh you know one of the 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 pastors says in this moment like look our churches are emptying out and obviously they're speaking of like the 1920s when cinema is still like in its you know it's still building into this massive industry that it would ultimately become but they flat out say we are in competition with the entertainment industry like that's what churches are we were they're like acknowledging that we were basically a form of entertainment and again that's where like gantry to me gets a pass in that that he's not just this like totally evil figure like gantry buys in to the idea that it's entertainment and that's often what he says like hey if it's just making these people happy for a little while if they're just forgetting about their troubles like what's the harm in that you know how is that necessarily a bad thing you know, but it's when you have those figures like Babbitt who are hovering around there, who are inserting themselves constantly in to these religious meetings to then throw up a sign that says Babbitt real estate, God, country, home, you know, that yeah. kind of shit. And that satire is reality. I mean, it was reality then, but it's even more reality now when you think of what's happened with obviously televangelism and then in general, the, you know, the electoral force of 
of evangelicalism in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. I mean, it's Our like... Our guy Benny Hinn, dude. Yeah. <laughs> gonna whip you with a fucking coat at the end of this episode, you know? For God. What's going on? Holy shit. <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, one question I have then to Andy, for you having read the book, um, and I hate to just like jump ahead so much with Elmer Gantry, but, you know, during the climax of the film, one of the other prophets in this film, you know, Sister Sharon Falcon, she does actually seem Falconer. <laughs> Falconer. <laughs> Which call is also Falcon. a fake name, by the way. I mean, we discover she even admits that that's not her real name. That, yeah, yeah that, of course. Yeah, yeah. goofy name. <laughs> but anyways, like, if, during the climax of the film, she does seemingly cure someone of one of their afflictions. A man comes up and says that he is deaf, that he was later in life struck deaf, that he was not born deaf, and she restores his hearing. And, you know, that's a huge moment in the film when you think about this idea of false prophets and even reading her as a false prophet throughout as this like revivalist. Is that something that happens in the book? Or is that something that's like a flourish of the film? I mean, I don't remember specifically if in the book she, like, you uh-huh. know, cures that man's deafness. Um, but I also think that the movie, in its own way, implies that she may not actually have cured that man's deafness. Sure. That this might have been something that she planted, that, that she set up. Or Mm -hmm. that there's another explanation for it. Because really, for me bringing this film to the table, I don't view Gantry as the false prophet. Sharon Falconer is the false prophet. You know? I mean, Gantry admits, like, at at multiple times, like, what he's doing is an act. Mm -hmm. But... I mean, all that other stuff does happen. Like the, the 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 tabernacle burns down. Like that does all happen in okay. in the book. So again, like this whole movie is about like a hundred hundred and twenty pages. I don't know. It's like a, a like a quarter of the book, really. Uh, Which is insane that they that they got this puppy up to two and a half hours. You know, with with, with just those hundred pages. Oh yeah. Hey, look, Rafifi was based on seven pages of a. Of of a crime novel you know it's yeah. fine well again you know like i feel like brooks is brooks is like trying to to stuff a lot of different things in here that mm-hmm. that you know he wanted and like like a lot of books adaptation you know it's a tricky business yeah it's funny that that jonathan rosenbaum referred to this as like a watered down i mean well i mean it makes sense that it's a watered down version of the book if you talk about elmer gantry being such a psycho in it but i did love how in the in the rosenbaum capsule he refers to brooks as the ultimate vulgarizer of serious literature <laughs> which i definitely you know buy i haven't read lord jim but i've like seen lord jim the film and let me tell you that that, that is the work of a man vulgarizing serious literature you know yeah. that thing's that thing's a mess any any hollywood director adapting a great book is vulgarizing serious yeah. literature especially <laughs> in that era i mean well, yeah, oh yeah totally 
I mean, and yeah, I think I think like Rosenbaum from from having read the book and being a big fan of the book and and also being a big fan of the movie. Like, yeah, I I see what he means because it is clear that that Richard Brooks is is has like sort of cherry picked one section and then built it into a a sort of love story on a certain level, but also a journey of redemption, one in which he grows in that very kind of Hollywood way. And in the book, none of that shit happens for Gantry. But yeah, you know, the film kind of takes him back there again towards the end where he's again like disheveled and dirty and the tabernacle's burned down and and where's he gonna go and what's he gonna do? But but he's learned like, nah, we took it too far, right? We went well, we Sharon went too tried hard. to play God. And, exactly. and the moment she tries to play God, uh, you know, uh, everyone gets burned alive, you know? And she's preaching until the end, truly. Uh, the yeah. Christian soldier, you know, oh, however yeah. misguided. Because again, like, say what you want about Gantry throughout the film. Like, he never attempts to lay hands on a person. He never promises someone that... that well, he punches a guy during a sermon for entertainment, yeah. WWF <laughs> style, he, you know? That's the thing. You gotta <laughs> punch the sinners. Yeah. You know? That's the thing. He gets more excited about, like, fighting people in church than he does about, like, healing people. Like, he wants to be, yeah. like, the, the warrior. And again, it's like the athlete shit, you know? Like, some guy jumps up and he says, like, I'll fight you every day of the weekend, twice on Sunday, you know? And he's, like, ready to go. I mean, he gets into that. But but he then like again quotes the Bible and and you know also quotes El Topo when he says, Hey, when I was a child I played with childish things. When I became a man, I put away childish things and gives us that great Bert smile and is like fuck it, I'm out. This is this is not what I actually signed up for. On the flip side, like Elmer Gantry in the book, Reverend Jenkins goes psychopath mode because <laughs> The climax there, you know, in in, in uh, you know, different from the the epic fire of Elmer Gantry, but nonetheless, both films uh, climax with like the big sermon, you know, of course, right? They're the about day false of days, preachers. Yeah. Sunday, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the big reckoning, you know, and uh, as Reverend Jenkins is giving his you know epic dry bones in the valley sermon, and everyone is like fucking jumping up and down and the whole church is rocking martha jane returns uh, from atlanta after uh, like three consecutive flashbacks that are all different uh reveal the the truth of the situation as her daughter dies and she learns that the reverend stole all her money uh in addition to everything else and she bursts into the church and accuses him and the whole congregation then starts like beating his ass which is a great moment uh, and he's chased out ultimately to circle back to his number one fan and beg for forgiveness and she grants him forgiveness you know because she is martha jane after all the dreamer you know and he kind of again is still like in his own like psychopathic way manipulating her yes. because he comes in and he's sort of like crying he gets down on his knees and he says you pampered me like you did all this you sort of basically accusing her yeah. like you built me up into this thing and then you tore me down you ruined me he says so he's still even in that moment like i can i can get to her i can i can somehow manipulate her 
and and get at least forgiveness out of it. I mean, it's totally twisted. It's a crazy scene because when he's like hiding in her home and those two like lovely ladies we had talked about beforehand that like had frequented frequented Martha's home like show up. I couldn't tell if this was like supposed to be comedy, of course, because the DJ Spooky score is like really intense. But while he's hiding in the background, uh, he like accidentally knocks over a broom and then the ladies like kind of look back and Martha's like, oh, don't worry about that you know like there's no there's nothing going on and then like another then a second one that's not a broom but like then a mop falls <laughs> later and i like the idea that I, w- I was hoping there would be a third that she's got like brooms and mops and but i love the idea that he keeps like knocking over these individual things that like in the broom closet that he's hiding in um but it is wild thinking about her harboring him there after everything like really just the absolute ultimate sin that he could provoke on this woman like defiling her daughter you know after she had put so much faith in him and the idea that she is still placing her faith in the christian text you know thinking about this idea of forgiveness and having to like then you know make good on her promises it's a nightmare Yeah. 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 And that's that's the thing, right? That's that's where we get then into, I think, what could often for me be like a very common kind of um trope, I guess you could say, or like kind of narrative element to a lot of films from this era, uh the silent era, the pre-code era of you know, so many movies that I've seen which which just depict the world in the most like bleak, apocalyptic, horrible ways filled with like violence and and just awful things happening to people. You know, melodrama that goes into the the absolute like darkest corners of human existence, but at the very end, kind of pulling that chain back a little bit and saying, it was actually all a dream. These things only exist in our minds or in crazy people's heads or in nightmares or that sort of thing, right? They A they tortured s- soul, as Martha's, uh, Martha Jane is referred to. The dreams of a tortured soul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's very similar to kind of like Caligari in the way that Caligari ends and, and in... I think other films we've already talked about on this podcast, like Waxwork, again, where you get all this stuff and then it was all like someone's imagination simply running wild. Well, it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, I think there's uh, a temptation to, to, to read the film as, yeah, as a kind of like real realist text or, or realism in some sense. And I get the feeling too that like, again, having seen the other silence and the way he has these like unfolding flashbacks that are constantly like revealing new information, it's just sort of like, often it's, it's hard to distinguish in his films, like what is dream and what is reality. And then you yeah. get the feeling that like, he doesn't actually think there's a difference. Right. And like seeing the the ending of this film, which is, yeah, like a Caligari-esque reveal where Martha Jane wakes up and it's like, oh, no, that was just, yeah, you just had a you just had a real bad dream, yeah. you know, but you were just chilling here. Ate the some whole of that time. bad alley chicken and had yeah. the, uh, well, like, the night sweats. <laughs> here's my take. And maybe this is because 
we just did the time travel episode. I was going to go there as well. Yeah. I, I think that I think this is her like having a vision and it's like based on mother's intuition. Like she was experiencing this in her dream. However, I think it is a reality. I like think <laughs> the film is suggesting that had the mother not interrupted this like. Oh boy. Because oh boy. doesn't the rape occur before the present tense of this movie once we are revealed that it's a dream? Yes. Exactly. So I think <laughs> you can read this film as what? No, I was just going to say because that's like. That was basically like the end of Time Stalkers. Uh, <laughs> I was sort of sitting there once it is like this, oh, dream. And we get the kind of like happy ending of her being like, no, she should be with Sylvester and blah, blah, blah. Like I was like, I, I honestly was sitting there going like, but but there's still Reverend Jenkins, right? right? He's that still- doesn't solve the problem of Reverend Jenkins. Yeah, it no, doesn't. I, and that's that's my thing. Like I, my read on this film, and maybe this is me like projecting too much on it. No, I think she was raped, and I think that the mother intuits this, and in her nightmare is what's revealed. Like the truth is revealed in her nightmare, this journey to Atlanta where she has this confrontation with her daughter and she like is acknowledging the truth of what Reverend Jenkins represents as this false prophet. And so she disrupts the timeline now that she's like had this vision of what could come to pass. If she doesn't respect and listen to her daughter, she then of course uses the money that's still in the Bible because this hasn't happened yet, gives it to her daughter so that she can go and live this other life. She can get married. Married to Jenkins' identical twin brother, Sylvester. Well, look, this is all happening. Is my point? Is what I was trying to get to. It's like a oh, Hong. Sure. Sang, it's like a Hong Sang Su movie. It's like yeah. all quote all worlds are possible, right? That's what like yeah. Hong has said about. Oh yeah, well, if there's like two two part structure in this movie, like they both happened. But how could they both happen when they're identical but different, right? Um, and I think this harkens again back to like within our gates, which you've seen. That is like the ending of that is like the thrice told tale. It tells right. the lynching three times over from multiple perspectives. And so, right, what we're seeing here is like the twice told tale. It's like, here's what could happen. Here's what also could happen, right? And we exactly. get both. It's like, to me, they don't, like, the dream reveal doesn't cancel out, you know, quote unquote, uh, what has come before it, right? Like, all right. of it is true in that yes. sense. Well, then, you know, if you want to go there, it's it's really like, you know, it's Badiou's ultimate paradox of the cinema. Cinema is totally real and totally artificial at the same time. And so both of these films in however they want to, you know, ease an audience out perhaps, or just simply end things or tie things up. Like, yes, they're acknowledging that these are, these are films, you know, they are constructions, they are artifice themselves, but they are both imploring us to see also the reality of these issues uh, right. that mm -hmm. that they want us to walk out and reflect upon. What I know about Michaud, uh, and I, I, you know, would like to know more. The more I find out about the guy, the more I find him to be yes, this incredibly sort of, um, you know, this this sort of like lost figure in 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 cinema history. Um, that obviously more and more people are are 
you know, in more recent years have come back to, as you said so well in your introduction, but like the guy also wrote for the Chicago Defender. I mean, this guy was someone who, as much as he was interested in sort of making movies, was interested in improving people's lives and in fighting for people's rights. He was a real Booker T. Washington head. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and the same thing with Sinclair Lewis, as much as the guy was, was writing a book about, you know, Elmer Gantry and this, that, and the other, and, and just, you know, selling some copies to the public. He's also saying, folks, there are some serious issues with our country. And it isn't just that like religion's dumb. Okay. It's like, nah, there are, there are capitalists that are taking advantage of you at every turn. And whether it's, it's, it's a vacuum cleaner they're trying to sell you or, or redemption, like you are being preyed upon by this world and a world that even creates people like Reverend T Jenkins that, you know, Michaud is in his own way in this film also trying to say like, Hey, the world creates people like this, you know, this world that has been so cruel to black folk in America and around the rest of the planet, you know? So yeah, I mean, again, obviously you could sit there and be like, wait, did the rape happen or not? Like, it was it all a dream, you know? But again, to your point, it's is like- there a re- Is there a Reverend Jenkins? It's still, I mean, it's unclear. Well, there, again, like, yeah, there, there are rapes taking place in this world, literally and figuratively, uh, constantly around us. There are people suffering. And, and again, I think it's something that both of these films- uh, you know, say what you want again about their construction or their 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 just their stories. They're they're trying to get us both films to walk away and and think and think. You know. Well, here, how about this? In order to have such an authentic and brilliant portrayal of false prophets, the artists themselves need to be great prophets in this situation. And I think with Sinclair Lewis and Oscar Michaud, we have authentic prophets that I'm fine, you know, aligning myself with and listening to their rallying cry as we look at these false prophets that they've been depicting. Well, I think it's also interesting too, that Oscar Michaud was basically a traveling salesman of his books and films. (laughs) So he almost, he even is like a gantry like figure. And I mean that in the most loving way possible of this like chameleon, you know, homesteader, novelist, filmmaker, like social issues, activist, you know, like, yeah, man, it just makes me so sad thinking about that. Just like, I mean, generally with silent film, but like how much of it is gone and lost and like it sounds so awesome to go and like read Oscar Michaud's novel um, and then like watch the film that he himself directed in adaptation of it you know the homesteader and just thinking that it's gone you know like it's just so fucking frustrating well also you know if you want to talk about prophecies uh, I think like the logical extension for um, Sinclair Lewis's original novel for a guy like Gantry is that eventually he would become the fucking president of the goddamn United States. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it's almost this like George W. Bush character. Or I, I kept this time around seeing Gantry as like this Trump-like figure. Yeah. You know? I mean, like there was even a moment, you know, where he's, again, like Trump, you know, he's thriving on the show regardless of what his actual convictions are, because I think Gantry, like Trump, doesn't actually have 
any real serious convictions in any of the shit that he's saying, but he knows how to sell newspapers. He knows how to get people to tune in to watch yeah. the fucking circus. He's also like delivering his radio rebuttal in the middle of a boxing ring oh, at I one love point. It. Yes. Yeah. I fucking love it, dude. Amazing. Yeah. Prophets of Doom, Michaud, and I'm going to give it more to Sinclair Lewis than Richard Brooks, even though he directed the film, but I'm going to lean to the source yeah, material. Yeah. Me too. Gantry is a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, you know. It was it was uh Yeah, Sinclair Lewis, for those who don't know our listeners, he was the first uh Nobel Prize winning winner in literature from the United States of America. Wow. Yeah. Not for this book though. I forget which one. <laughs> well, Ryan, these were our false prophets that we we thought um we could use to to praise praise your topic, you know, to bring the glory for this week. Um, when you think about that in cinema, what comes to mind for you? Or I should say, who comes to mind for you? Yeah, well, funny enough, the, the man who comes to mind for me is the titular Tommy of Tommy. I was fucking obsessed with The Who when I was in middle school and into high school. They were like my favorite band. I feel like I knew everything about them. I was like a big Who guy for some reason. I still like them, but I was like obsessed with The Who and the idea of like a rock opera that like was so intoxicating to me. And I was so into the Tommy record. And naturally, I when I heard there was a film, I was like, I got to see this. So imagine me in like, it was probably in sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade when I saw Ken Russell's Tommy. And I was like, not ready for that. I was like, what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> and I don't think I've seen it since then. But I feel like I remember that film extremely vividly. I mean, it helps that I can now when I hear the songs, I can picture so many images from the film, like so many of the images from that film are seared into my brain because of the way they like work with the lyrics of, of that album that I like know by heart. But that is like, you know, it's a wild, crazy Ken Russell film starring the who you've got Elton John in it, Tina Turner, Eric Clapton, Oliver Reed, Jack Nicholson and Margaret, the gang's all there. It's like one of those really funny movies too. one of those movie musicals where half the cast like can't sing and then the other half are like real musicians and performers who like have great voices and that's like a really funny juxtaposition uh between the two but yeah i mean it's ken russell in his full kaleidoscopic glory it's hallucinatory i mean that's the best yeah. way to describe it yeah and then just immediately follow it up which you could maybe call another false prophet film but the other film that ken russell made with roger daltrey litsomania you get to see roger daltrey like ride around on a giant 30 foot ceramic penis mm -hmm. um, but then like other people are you know straddling well ken russell you could argue made an, an entire career out of depicting false prophets. I mean, the devil was also devils, on my short list. I mean, yeah. another great one. How can you resist? Did you ever see Tommy live by any chance? Did you ever get to see it performed live on a stage? No, I, I have seen the who twice and you know, they played a ton of Tommy tracks the first time I saw them. And then the second time I saw them, they actually played Quadrophenia in full, mm. which is my favorite who record. So that was like pretty thrilling, just like this other rock opera. But, um, yeah, have not myself seen Tommy performed live. That was the first, 
uh, live performance my parents took me to when I was a wee lad was Tommy at the Chicago Theater. I got to see that. And I, I had first seen the live show, and then as I grew older and then discovered the film, I was like, I loved the show so much. I, ga- I got to see the movie. And the movie, very different from the live show, I got to say. <laughs> yeah. Ken Russell uh, was not directing that performance uh, that I saw at the Chicago Theater. No. I'll say that. But yeah, so that, you know, that's what I would I'd recommend people check that out if they want like a really crazy evening. But um, so that, you know. Those were our false prophets this week. I, I had a great time. They were two really remarkable films. But uh, Marsh, you're up next. What do what do we uh, what are we tasked with for next week? Well, we're getting into uh, that holiday season and getting into uh, that spirit. And uh, Kyle uh, gave me the encouragement to uh, return to my roots as the uh, the seasonal selector of movie topics on the Gauntlet, and so. Simply, I want you to let it snow next week. Bring me films with snow and lots of it. And that's... Get my shovel. That's really all I want, (laughs) you know? Just trying to think of the best cocaine movies I know right now. (laughs) (laughs) As always... You can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I found a Gideon Bible. I was so lonely and miserable, I, I might as well have been in hell. I was in hell. I knew all the salesman's tricks. Why wasn't I rich? Why wasn't I successful? I opened the Bible and I read the 18th Psalm. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. The Lord is my fortress. Do you hear that? The Lord. The Lord is my rock. The next morning I walked into a general store. What are you selling today, Elmer? Some gold-plated vacuum cleaners? No, sir, I said. You can get better vacuum cleaners at Sears and Roebuck, and you can get them cheaper. But you can't beat our electric toasters at any price. And the man sat down and wrote me the biggest order of the year. Can you hear me, Lord? Thank you. I didn't make that sale, Lord. You did. Thank you. When I told my pals pals I was coming to Jesus, they laughed. But Sister Falconer didn't laugh. She said, go ahead, brother. Give him hell. And before I'm through, I'm going to give you all the hell of the Bible. And if you don't like it, you better fix it up with the Lord, because the Lord put it there. Listen to me, sinners. Listen to me, sinners. You can't pray to kingdom come and play bridge or poker. And mother, you can't say your psalms and look at God from the bottom of a beer mug now, can you? And you, brother, you can't go to church on Sunday and cheat at business on Monday. We're coming back to you, God. We're coming back to the old-time religion. What is religion? Religion is love. And love is the morning and the evening star. Love, the eternal, glorious music maker. Love, not the carnal, but the divine love. And where does this great love come from? It comes direct from God. I admit I'm not smart like some of them 
Some of them smart-alecky professors, wise guy writers and agitators. I don't know the first thing about theosophy, philosophy, psychology, ideology, or any other ology, but I know this. With Christ, you're saved. And without him, you're lost. Yeah. And how do I know there's a merciful God? Because I've seen the devil plenty of times. <laughs>